All right, ready when you are. Yep, <clears throat> all good. All right, Santiago, welcome to Mint. How you feeling, man? Thank you for being on. Hey, Adam, it's great, great to be here. Thanks for having me. You got it, man. I think this is round two of our, of our conversations. First time I, I chatted with you was on the last show, Blockchain and Booze, and uh, here we are today on Mint. So let's just jump right into it, okay? Uh, tell me a bit about yourself, but more specifically, what were you like before crypto? Oh, wow. Uh, that is a good question. Um, about myself, I I grew up in Mexico, I guess. Um, and to me, that's like been a hallmark experience of understanding how broken the world is in many ways. Um, I think a lot of people that come to crypto have a better appreciation of why things matter and why we're building this. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, after that, I... Uh, I spent most of my time in, in finance. I studied game theory. Um, and for me, when I discovered Bitcoin in 2012, it was really what drew me was the Nakamoto consensus. I, I emailed all my, my game theory professors and said, wow, this is like a new chapter in game theory. We've got to update all our books. Um, and, and But of course, like they, they were like, they dismissed it. Um, and, but for me, it's always been this idea of uh, I, my, if I were to think about what, what I obsess about is friction. I just can't stand it when I go to the doctor and I, I get to fill out 20 forms over and over again, or when I need to send a wire or when I need to travel. And like, I just generally think that that for me has been my framework for understanding investment opportunities. When I see friction, wherever it may be, then I sort of like understand, okay, why, why can't we do, like there ought to be a better way to do this or that, right? And, and I think like crypto, <clears throat> when anyone that has used a stable coin to send money doesn't want to go back to sending a wire transfer. And so for me, it's sort of an inevitability that we're moving this direction. Anyone that is critical crypto hasn't used it. And I think like, or is trapped in the state of the world where it was just Bitcoin and you didn't have a lot of usability in these systems. Whereas today, I think we're entering what was been most interesting to me over the last, like really like kind of like year and a half to two is that we are entering into like a state of the world where crypto applications are providing equal or more functionality across the board than traditional like um, you know, systems. And that's, I think, like any piece of technology that gets adopted as a successful needs to provide a 10x better improvement. And incredibly, places in crypto are faster, better, sometimes cheaper, but depending on how you define those things, it, it's very subjective. I understand that. But that's what's like, I guess that's me. And I know I like shifted <laughs> towards like giving you an answer that is related to crypto. But it's been hard for me not to obsess about this stuff because I think like, look, at a very primitive level, like it pisses me the fuck off that, you know, the people in finance, uh, pe people that need it the most are hurt the most in, in a lot of these systems that have friction. When you think about money, like people don't have access to credit. People can't, uh, you know, like are charged exorbitant fees. And to you, an $8, like, you know, wire transfer fee is not much, but, you know, it, it, it is a lot for other people. And so, um, you know, I, I think a lot of consumer surplus, a lot of benefit will come from crypto. Um, and, and it's going to impact people that need it the most. And so that's like, that's what motivates me. No, look, I'm Jewish An $8 fee for a transfer is like, it, it hurts my pocket. Uh, and I also like part of Mint and the business model of Mint is since the get go, I always wanted to make all revenue on chain. So every single season I issue NFTs as sponsorships. And I also try to pay the people who help basically manage Mint in crypto, but all these like transaction fees eat up into that. So I still use Venmo sometimes and I still use other platforms, but I hear you. But let's let's revert back to a keyword that you said, okay? Friction, a core theme 
uh, that you said really, really resonated with you growing up. And I guess my my next question to you is like, what was it like growing up in the Santos household? Like, were you were you just like always trying to fix stuff? Were you always you're like, mom, dad, friction? Like, I gotta fix this. Like, it doesn't make yeah. sense. Like, what was that like growing yeah. up? Yeah, I, it's funny because I just spent this this weekend uh, going back home. And yeah, I think so. I was the youngest, I had two older sisters, and um, I don't know. Like, I. I do obsess about inefficiencies when uh, I, uh, I, I guess you'd have to ask my parents. Uh, it's probably a royal pain in the ass, um, but uh, uh, I love to travel. Um, I think understanding how different people view the world um, has really, I credit my parents because they we didn't have a lot of money growing up, but um, you know, we, we did travel. Uh, the two buckets where we spent money was travel and education. Uh, and my parents were always there for me. And so I think like growing up in that environment allowed me to like feel comfortable taking outsized risks because I think ultimately you want to have a cradle where you can, if, if shit really hits the fan, ultimately you have a support network that you can go back to and say, Hey, you know, you know, yeah, like uh, I didn't make, I lost it all or whatever, but I think ultimately like you have a, a support network. Um, and I think it's super important, especially in, you know, so I've always felt really comfortable taking risk. Um, because for me, it's like this idea that you can constantly reinvent yourself. Like you have the mental faculties mm -hmm. to then say, you're going to figure it out. Uh, and look, we've been, I've been writing crypto at times. I've been terribly wrong. I've made a ton of mistakes, but I think the key hallmark that, and I, and I always credit my parents for this is inspiring me, this idea of just doing stuff that I think matters, uh, and not being very complacent. Um, and I think that's where I just obsess about when there's friction to me, it's, it's, um, it's just a, a more like from like it's part of this notion that i i i want to do stuff that you know one always matters can have an impact and two um you know i think um so i'll, I'll give you a piece of uh of uh that i i don't think i've ever told anyone in a public context but my middle sister is sick and she's been sick okay. for like eight years um, and we didn't really know what she had. She was like a rare form of epilepsy. And going through that process to me, it was very difficult um, because it's not like my sister is missing an arm or a leg. Um, she's like there, but she's not there. And so at the same time, for me, it was really difficult because you're left wondering, it could have been me. You know, probabilistically, genetically, like, I, I don't know, like there might be some some genetic expression that happened when she was growing up and just triggered this like uh, disease right. of sorts. And so like that also when I, I was, I vividly remember because this was happened when I was at a, I was at a venture fund investing in like startups and software startups. And I said, does this really matter? Like, okay, do I want to go out and invest and find the next Salesforce? Like, trust me, like, so, like software as a service has been huge uh, um, and it's been a big transformation. But for me, I was doing crypto by night and I said, well, I, I see this entire world and, and I think it's going to have a massive impact on a lot of things. Um, and, and to me, that was like a big, big catalyst is saying, okay, I, I just really just want to focus all of my time because I don't know how much time I have to doing thing that, things that I think will ultimately matter the most. Um, because, you know, like it, it really centered me and put a lot of perspective into my life around, um, you know, we're incredibly lucky, um, you know, and, and I think, and when you see other people that are not, then it kind of forces you in places a lot of, uh, it, align, it really kind of centered and aligned my values and principles and how I dedicate my time. What a what a unique experience to have underneath your belt. Obviously, uh, I mean, 
health is number one, right? But how that kind of translates to how you approach investing and how you approach uh, your professional life and the things that you look and how you value things, right? Um, and the choices that you make and the teams that you kind of contribute to, like all these things kind of trickle down to who you were growing up, the experiences that you had and what you deem as as valuable. And that also kind of pivots to my next point of you being at Parify for, for a while, right? and investing through Parify. And now you're, you left Parify. So I guess, right. what have you been up to post Parify? Uh, well, first of all, I had a great run of Parify. I, I mean, I, I think I'm super proud of what we did there. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is, is we think, I think we built a fantastic team. Um, Anjan, Nick, Mika, Ben, uh, was my partner, um, and, and uh, Adrian. Like, we really just grew the team. When I, when I joined, we were a team of, uh, it, it was in a, we, we were in a WeWork in San Francisco. Uh, and we had, a very little capital, but we have really strong backing from like folks like Bain and, and KKR. And, and I think ultimately that was um, a really fun ride. We were, I think we were the first vertically focused crypto fund. You know, most crypto funds are just very general, right? So we're going to, we're going to just invest broadly in crypto, but we, we are focused on what we, you know, it was just, we think the DeFi is going to be transformational. And we just sort of like focused on that. And, and I credit a lot of our success to that because uh, founders knew that we were active users in these systems, like early beta testers. Um, and so I think that was a, a fantastic ride. Um, I, I, I'm now, so what I'm doing now, uh, I see this, this massive opportunity of a convergence of like three things, really like DAOs is a broader circle within that you have, we're defined that like as a metaverse and within that you have like very interesting stuff happening in NFT land, uh, which is onboarding, like, like that is sort of the Trojan horse of crypto. Most people enter, they buy NFTs, um, you know, for over the last eight years, I've tried to explain why crypto to people, and it's been difficult. Uh, but NFTs make it very relatable because people love collecting. And I think this is going to be an onboarding mechanism for, for millions, right? And then you have gaming attached to that. So what's happening in Axie has been uh, probably a, a, like a, is showing the world and even game studios of how powerful this can be. Um, and then you have DeFi. And so I think there's going to be a convergence of all these three worlds in the metaverse, uh, which is we're spending more time in the digital world. Um, and, and I think, you know, um, uh, so I'm excited about that. I'm, I'm, I'm investing, uh, as an angel, um, uh, advising mm -hmm. people like, you know, helping teams and, and founders, um, in any way that I can. Um, and then, you know, maybe, maybe I'll launch a podcast. Who knows? I, I think, uh, <laughs> where I, where I want to focus more of my energy, part of my energy is, is helping educate, create like just pure educational content, content without any agenda or like, you know, like, or make it as just as helpful for people. Because unfortunately, I think that the people get called up on stage on CNBC and Bloomberg are always talking about price, are always talking about in a very defensive, defensive context. It's like, like I don't, I don't want to just like, I think when you inherently talk about crypto, most of the narrative has always been, we're going to, we're going to explode Wall Street as we know it. And we're going to like, you know, this very crypto punk attitude. And I think it's defensive, because we all know that Look, we've all been in these dinner conversations and Thanksgiving and what have you, and people are like, oh, this is a scam, this is drug money, this is Silk Road stuff. Um, and it's difficult to overcome that. The, the natural response is to be very defensive when someone is constantly asking you questions. But I think generally more and more people are very interested now in crypto because of NFTs or gaming or what have you. And I think there's an opportunity to just create very, you know, all we need to do is just explain this technology for what it is and go out and encourage people to use it. And that's it. We don't need to do anything else. I don't care if Doge is a dollar or five dollars. Who like who fucking cares? Like when you talk about that, it really discredits this because when people see 
these charlatans and go on TV, naturally it's like, oh, this is like the guy that couldn't get into investment banking that wasn't successful in Wall Street, ended up going to crypto, was lucky, and now he thinks he's a genius. And, and I think that that doesn't serve us well because ultimately there's a lot of really smart people here that are not, don't have the microphone, but there'd be much better, much better stewards of communicating this technology to the broader world. So if you had a podcast, what would be your first episode? What do you think? What topic? Oh, that's a great. I mean, isn't that what you're going through now? Um, I don't know. You have more experience than I do on this, but I would probably bring on, um, I would probably bring on like Ray Dalio uh, because someone that's been critical about this stuff, uh, but he's sort of like gone through the journey of being critical and skeptical. And now, as, as I understand it, has exposure to it and understanding what went into that. Um, and just talking about the hard stuff, like what took him so long? Um, maybe I'd bring on something that is extremely critical of it. Um, I don't know. I think those are the kind of discussions that we need to have. Oh, I think you're on mute. Kind of. Oh, can you hear me now? Yeah. Why did you hop on the bag uh, bandwagon of crypto so quickly versus someone, let's say like, Ray Dalio, who, who took his time kind of thing. Like, what, what did you see that you think others missed early on? Um, I don't know. For me, it was just playing with it. Um, I think I, I, I said, this is interesting. Uh, it sounds like a little crazy. Like, I love Harry Potter, I guess. And so, like, Magical Internet Money headline on Reddit forum, like, really got my attention. And then I said, well, I, I want to try this. Because, again, I said... Uh, remittances to me was the immediate use case for Bitcoin. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to go out and try to buy like a, a bunch of Bitcoin and send it to like 20 people. And if they can convert it, or I think it was 10 or 20 and said, if they can convert it to, to local currency pesos and you're immediately displacing, uh, the remittance flows, like you kill Western unions of the world that are charging, uh, you know, eight, 10%. And so to me, the hallmark of, of why I became increasingly interested in this technology is just playing with it, like using it. Uh, that's what yeah. led me to DeFi early. That's what has led me to like stuff like Axie and Alluvium, like gaming and, and NFTs. Um, that, that was probably like what was the most interesting to me. The other component is like open source, because I was investing in open source software um, at this venture fund called Sageview Capital. And this was at a time where like it is kind of it was most VCs were just like, how do you monetize stuff that is inherently free? Right. Because open source like Linux, like you just develop this piece of code and can be copied. And it's like very counterintuitive to say, how am I going to monetize something that, you know, is, is inherently free and open to the world. It sort of comes from like this archaic model, like IP and protection. And, uh, but, but our thesis there was like a lot of value can be created stuff like Mongo uh, and Alfresco and like some of these systems, like, like Red Hat are open source, but they provide value added services. Uh, they attract really smart people to develop stuff. Um, and when I saw Ethereum, like to me, that was the aha. Uh, it was like, Oh, okay. Like, open source software development is is really powerful because it attracts smart people to just in this collaborative environment just come and go right um particularly linux but you you have two problems with that one is continuity like you know how do you actually pay these people like and incentivize them to like continue to develop um a lot of traditional open source development is being um, subsidized by people at google and facebook and netflix that just have spare time right google has this policy where people work on their pet projects for a day a lot of it is going in open source development um and the second one is like accruing value to contributors, right? Uh, like Linux himself didn't actually make a lot of money developing this system, 
or the developers like Tim Berners-Lee didn't capture as much money as you would have thought. Right? You ever said, oh, this, this must be the, the richest guy in the world because he just literally developed the internet. But it's been like the, the top aggregators that have accrued most value. And so when I saw Ethereum, I said, okay, this general smart contract platform um, can solve a lot of the problems of open source development. Um, and I think the, what is most exciting is, I didn't know if DeFi was gonna be thing. Uh, I just sort of the bet there was, okay, well, really cool stuff happens in open source development. The pace of innovation and iteration is much, much faster. It's like compounding. Mm -hmm. And then when you layer on top of that really good token design and economics to accrue value, then it just like, it's gonna be explosive. And, and I think that was, I was lucky that I was in San Francisco at the time, I was investing in open source software and I saw it here early on because I had just been investing by night in crypto and was obsessing about it. Um, and I guess the, the last point I'll say is, it to this day is still very encouraging that most of the smartest people of like a different era are highly critical of this space. Um, without really truly taking time, I think, as far as I understand it, when I talk to them about understanding this technology, and to me, it's always been like, anytime someone really, really is, has a visceral reaction to something, um, it's like, well, just probe there, right? Because like it, nothing, is, nothing is truly obvious in this world, like nothing. And I think I've said it before, but when you think something is obvious, it's probably not. It's your perception of it and is that you probably do not understand it to the level of granularity because nothing truly is, I mean, is at the end of the day, a state of probabilities. And, People love to think in binary terms. People love to dismiss stuff because it, it conflicts with their worldview or it conflicts with their portfolio and their bags or whatever. Um, and I understand that you might not take an interest in something. Uh, and I understand that some people might say, like Buffett, say, hey, look, I, I'm not a technologist, so I'm not going to invest in the internet. I'm just going to stick to my guns and just buy stuff that I eat and can touch and use every right. day, like Krispy Kreme and all this stuff. That's fine. I mean, he's, he's, he's a great investor. But it's, I think... I think in this state of the world, I think new paradigm shifts are, are compressing. Like the, the state by which the world is changing is radically, like, is radically accelerating, largely because of the internet, largely because we're uber connected now. And I think the pace of information is, is, is being disseminated and created and then disseminated at an accelerating pace. And so new ideas get adopted and iterated much faster. And so there, there's sort of this analogy that like if you were to put someone that was born in the 11th century in the 16th century and you just sort of tele teleport him to the 16th century, he would have been like, okay, kind of the world has changed a little bit. Like, you know, people kind of do the same stuff, but it, it largely would have like, yeah, he would be surprised. But if you do the same mm -hmm. for someone that was born in like the 18th, 18th century and you teleport to today, you'd probably have a heart attack. Because because things are radically different, and I think I think that that time scale of how things are like even like your grandmother today, or you know even your parents, it's really hard for them to understand some of this stuff. It's like, what do you mean you're you're playing this virtual game, and and, and what what do you mean about punks? Like my parents were so critical when I was buying punks. I said, all you got to understand is that like, you know, it's just a it's just an image, and and I think like that to me has always been it's been a uh, uh from first principles it's been what has guided my uh level of interest into probing into certain stuff right when when people are really critical about something because they probably don't understand it and there's probably there's probably a lot of substance there um it's sort of the analogy of like if you remember bookstores um like barnes and noble um when you walk in there you naturally like have an an affinity towards walking towards the aisles that you love whether it's comic books or fiction or non-fiction Right. 
but you know that there's people that are spending time in other aisles. Um, like there are people that are in the, that corner of the bookstore that you've never ventured out to. And you've got to wonder like, why are people there? There's clearly some value that other people are seeing. So wouldn't it be in your best interest to just occasionally just go up there, ask people questions like, what do you like here? And then if it's okay, if you don't like it, it's okay. You, you can go back your aisle, but there's infinite, like, I think there's a ton of value in just constantly having that intellectual curiosity to venturing into a particular aisle in the bookstore in the library that you never allowed yourself to go into because you never know. You might love Stephen King or you might love comic books or you might love nonfiction, yeah. but allowing yourself to be in a position in sort of this frontier of, of it is sometimes uncomfortable to venture into places where you don't have no, no experience. And I think a lot of people experience that in crypto. They come to this world and there's all these topics and, and lingo and it can be really daunting. Um, but nonetheless, like anyone from the outside in must be realizing at this point, okay, there's really smart people here. Okay, there's a lot of value yeah. being created. If you're an artist, you're looking at NFTs, you're saying, I probably should have an NFT strategy. Yeah. You know, dude, when I when I walk into a Barnes and Nobles, the first aisle I gravitate to is Starbucks. That's where my fat ass goes <laughs> to get like a, a blueberry muffin. Oh, like yeah. <laughs> like oh, you, yeah. you, you gravitate towards the comic books. I gravitate towards the blueberry muffins. Now, all, joke, all jokes aside, <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to talk more about, uh, I, I, I guess, like your, your, investing, your investing strategy, okay? Um, the more I consume like your content, the more I listen to you on podcasts, the more I, I read your tweets, uh, you have a very like philosophical approach, I think, to, to, to the investments that you make, but also you're very strategic, Okay. Um, and beyond being like a, a stellar writer on Twitter and not to toot your horn, right? But you, you have a good job like conveying thoughts uh, really clearly. Um, what are some, I guess, principles you live by as an investor? And we talked a little bit about this with, with your sister, right? But I, I want to dive a little bit more into it. Like, what are some core foundations you hold yourself accountable to, if any, before making a bet? Yeah, um, it's a great question. Um, first and foremost, uh, it's stuff that I can see myself using. Um, I love to invest in stuff that I can use. Um, and so that's one. The second one is um, just always finding um, one or two or three or whatever it is, things that I can help a team. And, and if I can't see that, then I tell them, look, you're better off taking money from someone else. So I always wanna understand ways that I can help a founder. And a lot of times I just come to them and say, hey, look, these are things that I can probably help you with. And these are things that I can't help you with. And so if there's alignment, those are the best relationships. Um, uh, I was talking about this the other day and uh, yesterday I tweeted about this. It's, it's sort of like this idea of, of how diver like diversification. And um, I think for me, it's, it served me well to just be more concentrated. And this is not about quantity of investments. It's really thematically focused on things that I think will have on a relative basis, you always have to think about where's my capital going to be optimized. Um, and so, um, you know, I think like not spreading myself too thin. Um, I mean, a pair if I were focused on DeFi today, I'm increasingly focused on investing a lot in games uh, and NFTs um, and still DeFi. So, so um, but for me, it's been um, just helpful to have, to know the people that come to me or I go to them understand in the things that I'm investing in, because I, I, there's a lot of, there's a lot of leverage that I get for just being very focused on a particular theme and observing trends and how the space is evolving and then leveraging that across. And it's not sharing insights between protocols. It's just more so from that vantage point, just being in a position where I can observe what Axie's doing, then Yield Guild's doing, then Alluvium's doing, and then other games. And so that, 
serves me well. Um, um, and so, um, and so those are sort of the main things that I tell founders. Um, at the at the core of it is again, you know, it, it needs to have uh, impact. I think um, I think that's been the case for most crypto investments. I think a lot of times understanding what motivates a founder is super important. Like why are they building um, and getting to know them uh, before I make an investment um, is because uh, a lot of times you know it's unclear if a founder is going to grind it out through a bear market. And I just want to always see that uh, of what really motivates them. And I think the the founders that I've been uh, had the privilege to back, I think a lot of most of them, if not all of them, have this growing desire to. It's pretty awesome to be in my position where I get to talk to people that have thought about problems for their entire life and have way more experience and domain expertise. And then it's, um, you know, just not, it's super encouraging to to hear them say, "Hey, look, I, I want to truly transform um, how you know banks operate." Uh, or, or or derivatives work or, or what have you. And so, um, yeah, that, th those are probably some of the main things um, I'm sure I'm missing. Some. So you see yourself using it. That's one principle, the level of impact that it has, uh, the founder's conviction and their belief and their underlying like motivation and, and inspiration to, to solve that problem. Those are like the three main kind of takeaways that, yeah, that I got. Yeah. But I know you've been investing since early 2012. And with being a good investor is kind of revisiting your thesis in altering different variables from 2012 yeah. to like where we are today. One, when was the last time you revisited that thesis and how was that kind of, how's that thesis or hypothesis kind of evolved over time? Yeah. Great. All the time, all the time. Cause when you think of probability, you inherently need to constantly process new information and update your thinking, right? This is goes back to, I never think in binary terms. There is a state of the world where Bitcoin is not successful at all, because, you know, who knows how the security budget of Bitcoin is going to work uh, after a certain point where block rewards diminish. Um, so, so like, and what is that? And, and so like, naturally, I think, you know, you constantly need to think about that. Um, and, and there is a version of this world where a theme is not as successful. Um, there's also not a zero sum game, I think, in, in all this space, like there's going to be a lot of value created. So thinking in maximalist terms, there's, I've never, I've never had it. Um, I've had inclinations naturally where I'm investing uh, a lot in the Ethereum ecosystem. Now it's Solana, increasingly other, mostly Solana and Ethereum. Um, but, but you always need to constantly like think in probabilities. And so that, and so, yeah, like I made a lot of mistakes. I think um, the, the key learning, for instance, in, in 2017, I was investing in a lot of like higher up the stack protocols uh, and applications and a lot of which had dependencies, uh, meaning like without a, without a highly credible throughput like layer one, well, a lot of social use cases are not going to work because it's super expensive, right? Uh, or, or um, and so that's one example, or like this is idea like, hey, let's decentralize everything. And no, you don't have to decentralize everything because you need to wonder like, what are you actually gaining, right? And does it really matter? It works for money, right? Where you minimizing, the only reason you want to have DeFi is because it minimizes counterparty risk. And that is super valuable to a financial participant, right? Like, um, you know, not relying on a, a middleman that is going to approve stuff and it's going to take time and it's uh, it has counterpart risk because that, that matters right um and so highly, having a highly transparent financial system um that that you know is is extremely valuable uh because the stakes are high um but should you be creating a decentralized uber i don't know decentralized airbnb i don't know can some of those applications borrow some elements uh of crypto probably um and so i think like um those were some of the mistakes like I made in 2017 was just investing in stuff that was too far ahead of its time. And the, the, the reason I kind of
kind of then understood that and probably stayed away from a lot of them was because it had a lot of dependencies because you needed to have a, a, a place where you can store these files cor correctly. So you need to have something like IPFS and it wasn't around. You needed to have a, a, an L2 that could credibly like support a lot of transactions you didn't have um, or something like a more throughput like blockchain Solana, which didn't exist. Um, and so I think like we always kind of have, for me, it's been uh, investing in stuff that is, is gaining traction. Like, you know, what drew me to NFTs and revisit that um, and gaming was just seeing, it was hard to dismiss the, level of traction some like Axie was getting um, um, or Yield Guild was getting. And so for me, if I were just distill it into one is just, you know, in this space, like, it's great because you can join these Discord channels and understand on chain how things are working or not working and how much traction they're getting. All you need to do is like probe. And what's super fascinating is like, this data exists available to anyone. And so one of the learnings I had was like, coming into the space from traditional markets, like I was JP Morgan and then just investing in like venture, which is super competitive asset classes. Like you sort of think that like all, all the opportunities are already are out. There's someone that has better information than you. Right. And so that skepticism for me kind of like was difficult to overcome because I sometimes I look at something and say, wow, like how is it that no one has like thought about this before or why, why, why am I not the consensus here? Like, what am I missing? Um, and ultimately I just come to the conclusion that a lot of people don't do the work. Um, even though data is like paradoxically, like just open there for anyone to observe, like how many people are actually like using on-chain analytics. And like, to me, that's just like incredible, right? You're not, you're not relying on the SEC, like 10K, 10Qs, like all this data is perfectly transparent, available to anyone to assess and inspect. All you gotta do is look. Um, and so um, to me, like long-winded answer, but like that's been like, I don't invest in stuff that I, I, I struggle to see get any remote traction or has too many dependencies. Mm -hmm. Because because the opportunity cost is there are stuff there is stuff that is getting a ton of traction, and, and just is out of favor or is like people haven't discovered it, and so in in the like the juxtaposition of these two worlds, stuff that like Cardano that has never shipped or just shipped for a long time, uh, you're sort of wondering like why are these things have any value or have any traction, and whereas you have this entire world and ecosystem that is exploding in usage and traction. Uh, and so that really just has sharpened my view on, on yeah. where I invest my capital. You're very much at uh, the type of person that says, just look at the data. Like I don't invest with emotion, rather with with logic and, and rationale. And I know other people make investment decisions based off what their gut tells them. And I think it's interesting to hear everybody's point of view. One thing you brought up that's super interesting is, and this kind of this kind of takes me back to, and I'm not going to quote the date, but before the roads, there were the cars. And everybody built the vehicles that drove on dirt before building the highways and the foundation that allows that allowed for a smoother finish. And it feels like we're first now building the roads, the infrastructure layers like IPFS, uh, like Ethereum, all these platforms that are composable and can be built on top of. And now we're like seeing the rise of the cars and all these different cars being built to use these roads. You know, and I think it's super applicable to, to kind of your, your analogy of we gave people the foundation, right? Let's see what they do with it. Uh, and and uh, I'll bet the ones that align with my with my thesis as an investor. Uh, and I, I, I want to take it, uh, the conversation now to social tokens, okay? And uh, the reason why I want to talk about social tokens, it's a topic that I bring up with everyone on the podcast. And it's why Mint exists. It's the impetus of, of, of where crypto meets creator, in my opinion, along with NFTs, along with with DAOs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I quit my job at Draper Gornholm because I had the opportunity to do a social token for a DJ, okay? 
And we put it on the back burner because just the tools and platforms weren't necessarily necessarily there to bring it to life. Uh, but it, it got me thinking like social tokens as an alternative investment class. And particularly the first thing that comes to mind is like FWB. Okay. So I want to, I want to read uh, a couple stats uh, mm-hmm. from some of like the top performing social tokens that I came across and, and get your opinion on something. Okay. So Ali coin, uh, which is the coin of Ali McPherson. She is, uh, she was on episode one, season one of mint, uh, December, 2020, her token hovered around 20 cents. And with its recent peak hitting $53 in September, 2021 play coin, uh, David play season one, episode 10, I think of mint. April 22nd, 2021, started at around $4.50, and now it's hovering around $40. FWB, uh, which uh, start, which I'm looking back to uh, May 2020, hovered around $6.50 uh, and is now comfortably today, uh, October 5th, at around what, $130, $130. Forefront is another, good, is, is another good example, and the list goes on and on and on. So mm-hmm. these social tokens as like an alternative investment class, one, how do you feel about them? Okay. And second, how do you feel them kind of playing a more significant role uh, of a hedge funds portfolio in the future? Do you see that happening over time? Yeah, absolutely. How's that any different? How's the social token any different than Facebook equity or Twitter? I mean, it's just sort of like an aggregation, right? Uh, Facebook's doing the aggregation of everyone's posting stuff because, you know, it's sort of they've created this platform where people can just, um, you know, I'm incentivized to tweet because, you know, I, I want to get my word out um, and connect with other people. But at the end of the day, like what drives human activities is this, this idea of like uh, connecting with other people and blockchains are great coordination mechanisms. Um, and now you're sort of going direct to your audience. Uh, why wouldn't you? And I think COVID has been an accelerant to that. People wonder why has why hasn't this happened before? It's a question that you always going to ask yourself. And, and what do I know? And what has, why hasn't this happened before? Some, some of the two like, or what do I know that others don't? And I think the key insight for me is like talking to creators uh, and saying, look, they were really hurt in COVID. And, and I think you needed to have a catalyst like that for them to understand, look, I can't have real world concerts. Um, I can't promote my brand in, in the physical world, but there's this, I, there's this ability to capture value with my, with my supporters in a very direct way. And, and I think that's super powerful. And I think it's going to transform how we think about you know, all kinds of industries, but broadly entertainment, right? And, and media, right? Um, and the same with YouTube and Spotify came to truly disrupt like the entertainment world and they had to adapt. I think in this case, if you're a creator, if you're an artist, you know, you have the distribution of the internet because again, Web3 connects to, to right. that. And then you can go direct and uh, from a, like, let's talk about the benefits, right? You have all the data, right? You can incentivize your early supporters with NFTs that are just digital records of someone saying, hey, I was here early and I was supporting Avicii, I was supporting Calvin Harris, or I was, you know, uh, early like into uh, Frank Ocean, wh- whatever, right? Um, and, and you can mint an NFT around that. You can even give them some, some of your revenue, right? You can give them access to certain stuff. And, and so I think like, um, it's been really interesting, like this inversion of how you first create a community and then you build applications and services around that versus to your point around building the road, uh, like layer one, infrastructure like really one development has been you had to kind of build something to allow for these state transitions and, and recording stuff on the blockchain with with trust and immutability guarantees that incentivize this whole stack of applications built on top but that was a very discreet way of developing products in crypto which is you, you kind of have to build it for people to come um now you have this idea of creating really powerful communities like a board a yacht club incredible right they've first started with a mint 
and like of just these board apes. And then they've partnered and created all these different services. Why? Because they have all the attention of users, like 50% or yeah. more of, of people are coming and without any reason, and I've never held crypto before, but they're buying these apes because they're cute or, or, and now it has access to other stuff. Uh, and social tokens are, are no different. Uh, in my mind, it's, it's the, this idea of I own my brand. You created Mint because you want to own your brand, right? Um, and I think that's super powerful. Um, unfortunately, I think, fortunately or unfortunately, I think social networks are going to realize and recognize that, you know, they should have probably been more generous to their users, especially early users uh, that have created a ton of value. Um, and, and I think things are inherently, there's a lot of friction there and a lot of yeah. uh, discontent. What do you kind of see the future of, of creators and the creator economy in general spiraling towards? Uh, and I only bring that up because of your last point of social networks will realize that they should have favored their earliest creators uh, uh, much better. I think there's one platform in particular that's doing this, like TikTok. Uh, and the, the most relevant example that comes to mind that they've done, just to give more context, is I remember early on when a lot of early creators were picking up traction and virality. They started sending them care packages, you know, to show appreciation. This is like a, 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 a package that was shipped to them that they invested money into, that they invested time to curate for this individual, you know. So whether it be through a token or whether it be uh, an act of kindness, right, these types of, of collaborations, this type of recognition, I think is forming much better on TikTok than Instagram or, or, or Twitter, for example. Uh, but what do you see this like the, this next wave of the creator economy kind of spiraling towards? Yeah, I mean, I think we're just in the very early stages of, of this explosion of, of creating social value and capturing this goodwill that exists in the world. Um, you know, when you think about the popularity of, for instance, sneakers uh, of Nike, like a lot of it is tied to, I don't know, like in particular, like like Jordans, right? Like Michael Jordan, sure, he got endorsements and he, he got paid a ton. But still, I mean, I think if you're not Michael Jordan, if you're just a, a really talented developer or a creator, um, then you just go direct and you just say, hey, you know, um, you know, ultimately think about how many people haven't been discovered just because they don't have access to these gatekeepers or yeah. that an algorithm doesn't push them up, uh, up the stack. It's really hard, right? It's really hard to get discovered or has been. Um, but now you're sort of seeing in the NFT world where so many people are just being discovered, like ferocious and, you know, and people have been doing a lot for, for a long time, but like there's this whole set of, of artists that are coming and minting NFTs, creating and uploading their art and getting a ton of traction. Um, and, and so I think like, you know, it starts with just creating your art. It starts with art just, you know, um, maybe issuing your, your own token. I think what's gonna be super interesting is what else do you do with that? Um, um, you know, Board Apes has been, I think one of the more impressive like projects that has had a, a iterated very quickly on layer one services to their, their core engaged community. Um, but if you're an artist, uh, you know, like, like, I don't know, Justin, Justin Lau is going to sort of at the forefront of this and try to experiment and do this since 2017. He's now come a long way. I think of like perhaps sharing revenue, uh, like royalties to, to the fan base and early adopters. Um, and so I think more and more like <clears throat> NFTs will be the cookies of web three. It will allow you to understand who your core early believers are and fan base is, and then use that mechanism to stitch together the metaverse and the meat space. If you're going to have a concert in LA, well, you know, as opposed to relying on Ticketmaster, then you might just give access to like friends and benefits have done this extremely well in crypto yeah. conferences, right? You can go to their events and, and they did it in Miami and Paris. And so I think like, um, 
but the use cases are vast, right? It, it could really be anyone, right? It could be a writer. It could be, I, I don't want to just say it's just an artist, like a, a, a painter, if you will. It could be a musician, yeah, yeah. a writer, any, anyone really. Yeah. I think part of, of, of creating that, of people owning their creator economy uh, comes with the element of the level of liquidity, the amount of value that's captured through whether it be their, their NFTs, whether it be through their social token. And something that's obviously super familiar to you is DeFi lending, DeFi borrowing. You're, you're an avid supporter of Aave and a bunch of other protocols. How do you think about creator economies and these like micro social networks building out their own peer-to-peer lending and borrowing networks? Yeah. Does that make um, sense at all? Yeah, so what you're saying is like um, like the ability to like borrow and lend against these social tokens? Exactly. But do so in a way where communities trust one another, right? Mm-hmm. And they trust the people in those communities. And for example, I may be more reluctant to take a loan from someone in FWB that I've interacted with, you know, online, um, rather than like, I don't know, mm-hmm. going on Ave, for example. And not to say that I don't mm-hmm. trust Ave or what they're building, right? Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think from like a more normie point of view, these things are so hard to understand at a higher level that when you live and, and breathe in these communities, you become so part of them and so ingrained in them yeah. that it opens up opportunities for new DeFi, DeFi products. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I mean, basically what you're describing is a reputation layer, which is, uh, you know, missing in DeFi, right? Because everything is over collateralized and that has, it's not, it's not the optimal solution, right? Like, uh, you know, in the traditional world, you have under collateralized loans because, you have a credit score and their credit can be enforced through violence. Like you can go to, you know, people can, there's recourse, right? Um, people value their credit score. Um, and so, you know, you can go to a bank and, and borrow money without posting like, you know, over collateralized, right? Putting, you know, 120% to borrow like, you know, a fraction of that. Um, and so you're right. I mean, I think like social tokens are another component by which you might say, hey, if you, there's a lot of richness in in your wallet address and things that you've you've done or not have done. For instance, have you ever been liquidated? Have you ever uh, sold a particular token? Have you, you know, whatever, right? And so I think like if you inspect that and you inspect the wallet activity, there's a lot of value there. Like I think like like a, think of it as like a DeFi passport. I think Arcix is 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 and talking to Kerman, I think like it's really exciting. Other other folks are trying to do this, which is there's mm-hmm. a lot of data that you can use to construct a credit profile or create a reputation layer, right? Because if you have a wallet address of six years old, for instance, or, or whatever, there's a lot of richness there. And, and if you have social tokens, then even all the better, right? Because it really starts creating a, a rounded profile of who the person or entity is behind that wallet, even though you don't know their identity. But, you know, actions speak louder than words. And so whatever they've done on chain uh, can't be, you know, can, can give you perhaps a more, um, can 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 be used to offer them incentives and perhaps better terms, lower interest rate, or uh, uh, better terms on the loan. Um, and so I think like you're, we're going to see a lot. To your point, a lot of uh, a lot of social tokens be and NFTs be used as mechanisms to really understand who your counterparty is in this like pseudo anonymous or fully anonymous world, and then offer a bunch of services on top of that. Uh, and DeFi is better terms, right? Um, and so. Um, yeah, I think it's, 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 this is why I think these two worlds or three worlds are going to converge really nicely. Yeah. Speaking of NFTs, uh, the, the conversations around DeFi and NFTs have, 
have been pretty loud on Twitter, I, I'd say, and I think you could agree. What are some of the less familiar use cases around the intersection and DeFi NFTs that kind of excite you? Oh, yeah. Well, I, mean, I think like, most people are really focused on the visualization of the metadata behind an NFT. Like, okay, like okay. at the end of the day, a punk, it, all these things that are like being minted have some underlying metadata to them. But, you know, like the visual representation of it is like very obvious to people. All they see is a nice punk or horrible punk or whatever. Um, but the true value is in the metadata. And when you think about it starts with art, um, but the general logic behind an NFT can be can be used for any sort of illiquid asset, like non-fungible asset, whether it be a parcel of land in Miami or Hong Kong uh, or uh, accounts receivable invoice uh, from a particular company. All you need to do is, again, like understand the taxonomy of the data. And sorry, I think my Eric going to die. Um, can you hear me I can cut that out. It's no big deal. Yeah. Uh, connect to my other one. Okay, here we go. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Hello? Okay, great. Yeah, so I think like it starts with art, but it's proving the use case of saying you take any sort of discrete, non-fungible thing, liquid asset, and then you, 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 you create more liquidity to that. So for instance, you know, you just NFT a bunch of parcels of land in Miami. Well, okay, I understand that an apartment in Brickell might be different. Like it's not one-to-one to an apartment in an adjacent building in Brickell. But, you know, you have reasonable data um, and the ability to then piece that together and say, like, this is no different than, like, mortgage-backed securities, right? Which, in theory, is, you know, it should work. The problem that in 2008, not to get too technical, is, you know, you just were using really bad data around correlation. But what we have learned from NFTs, if you look at something like NFTX or some of these other things, is that the minute you create sort of like a, a, a base floor punk, you know, not every punk is different, but at the same time, it has certain attributes that allow you to construct an index of a base punk. And a base punk should be worth at least X. So there's a floor around that because there's a lot of data behind that, right? And so mortgage-backed securities is an example or an insurance contract is an example. Well, they're all discrete, but at the same time, they have very um, overlapping like, like shared properties that allow you to then construct an index or create these financial products like mortgage-backed securities. And what does that do? That increases, removes friction because it increases the trend, like that increases volume and how you can freely trade these things, right? How many you know, apartments or piece, even if you fractionalize a set NFT, like it creates just more volume and velocity in, in transactions, right? And that creates a better price discovery and better price discovery that allows you to, you know, understand how, how liquid or illiquid an asset is and then, con- mm-hmm. and then create credit terms around that and create money markets around that. And so you start seeing how all of this can work Anytime you, you wonder like, hey, you just sort of have to ask how easy it is for a company to get liquidity in their accounts receivable. Well, there's a whole like market pocket of the market in Wall Street that like buys these things at cents in the dollar, but there's inefficiencies, right? Um, whereas if you could fractionalize pieces of that, then it just creates a more fluid market. Uh, and so I think we're gonna see an explosion of using NFTs to bring more liquidity and price discovery to liquid assets just things that don't get traded as much because, you know, you can only buy one piece of an apartment. Well, maybe you can just buy a, 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 a fractional of that. Uh, it goes and the same is true for a lot of things, right? I'm just using real estate because it's perhaps yeah. more relatable to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about more of like the, one of the more recent big headlines that hit NFTs recently with TikTok entering the space and uh, one of your investments being Immutable X supporting that entire wave. And 
which we can confidently say if they do it correctly and the audience on TikTok kind of responds that it's going to be one of the catalysts for NFT adoption. Um, and just to give more context for those who are listening, uh, TikTok is taking its own play on, on selling NBA Top Shot inspired moments on Immutable X, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, a layer two of Ethereum, right? Yep. yep. Okay. Um, and, yep. Uh, and TikTok kind of coins it as own the videos that broke the internet. So you were an early investor in Immutable. What's your take on why TikTok decided to use Immutable over a competitor like Flow, for example? And it's an indirect competitor. I don't think it's a direct competitor, but mm -hmm. uh, but let's say someone like F uh, Flow, because there was a lot of like talk around that on, on Twitter. Yeah, I think you have to understand like what drew me to Immutable was it's a team that's been understands how painful it is to build on the layer one. Like, so Robbie and the team are the built Gods on Chain, which was, I think, the for a long time, one of the highest grossing like NFT projects. But it was very expensive. So in that through that experience, then they said, hey, let's build a layer two that is specific uh, and very well catered to NFTs uh, and gaming applications. Um, and so, um, you know, I think ultimately each layer two, Starkware, like, um, you know, uh, like uh, Arbitrum, um, Optimism, um, and Immutable X just do certain trade-offs. Um, and again, Immutable X is, is using Starkware technology to, to build, I think, one of just a very specific, I don't wanna say just fully focused, but more specific blockchain uh, layer two, sorry, for for NFTs and gaming. Uh, and so I think ultimately, like if you're a TikTok, you can say, hey, I can deploy on Solana, perhaps I can deploy on Flow um, uh, and, and I can deploy on on, uh, on Immutable X. And I think, you know, to this day, I think, like you just benefit from the security guarantees of Ethereum, which is one of the more, if not the more battle tested, like, you know, network out there, absent Bitcoin. Um, and, and then you just, you know, I think it's, and you tap into the community um, and user base of Ethereum. And I think that's ultimately, uh, you know, the same with it, perhaps Visa decided to, you know, um, you know, deploy on, on Ethereum uh, and use Ethereum um, and, and enable USDC transfers um, is because, you know, there, Ethereum has been battle tested, it has more Lindy effect, it has more more developers behind it. And so, you know, that that is sort of my bullish case for Ethereum is that if you look at the number of developers and activity, you know, it's not to say that other ecosystems are not growing, but Ethereum continues to be king in that perspective. Yeah. I want to pivot because we only have so much time left um, and, yeah. and talk more about uh, personal questions that you kind of, how you developed as an individual, um, as an investor, as just like a human in crypto. Okay. So what is one lesson that's taken you the longest to learn during your time in the space? Hmm. That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think, um, so what is one lesson that has taken me longer to, to understand in the space? Um, I, I think it's this, this impatience, uh, that I feel, I think others feel too, which is, it's really hard to be in a position where you, you think that you know, it's probably going to sound like I'm contradicting myself because to me, this technology is incre increasingly obvious. It's just a matter of when it's going to be deployed, when it's going to be adopted. And it's, it's sort of hard that once you discover crypto and you start using it and you, you understand the potential that it might have, just being a little bit more patient in how these things will, will take to get true mainstream adoption. Because I still think we're super early. 
Um, we're all kind of beta testers, uh, but it is difficult because when you juxtapose that with how a lot of world problems that exist today, and you're saying, well, God damn it, I hope these things like, what is it gonna take for more people to realize that, you know, the economy's not growing. Uh, there's all these different problems like the, during COVID, right? People are getting checks in the mail or not getting them or like it was just delayed for three weeks. And that means a lot of people are dying, right? Because if you're not getting a check in, in the mail, there's just a better way to do this. Like you just issue like, <laughs> you know, take all the wallets of, all, of the entire population of the US and like issue stream, stream these payments to them and make it conditional. They can only spend it in X or Y. Like, like universal basic income is something that I'm super fascinated about. I think it, I think it solves a lot of the world problems. Like, like at this intersection, like with automation, you know, a lot of jobs are gonna be displaced and, and, and you're gonna have to retrain and give employment to uh, a lot of, a lot of people that are just going to go out of work because a machine will do, you know, certain roles better than a human. And, and I think like universal basic kingdom is the solution to a lot of things. And I think crypto uniquely enables that. Um, and I sometimes need to remind myself to be more patient, uh, and, and serve that as sort of motivation to, to try to educate and try to expose the benefits of this technology to more and more people. But it can be difficult at times because, you know, the world is not necessarily in a great spot in a number of ways. It's also in a in a beautiful spot because there's a lot of technology and there's this, you know, pockets of the world that are seeing incredible innovations, like in, in healthcare, biotech, like, um, and in crypto. Um, but but you know, there's there's many things in this world that are broken, and how do you live knowing that, at least from my perspective, that you you sort of have the key to a lot of these things. Uh, and, and you kind of see the door, but there's like three bouncers that are like there and blocking you. And it's really frustrating. It was, it really is very frustrating, especially when the, those bouncers don't care and don't take any interest in understanding how this technology can be, can be used. And a lot of it is politicians, but I think ultimately things will sort themselves out because I think in this century, I've said it, there will be, you know, there will be the, the countries and the places that were more crypto friendly will come out far ahead than the, than the countries that resisted it. Um, and look, I don't want to go as far as saying like, look, the separation of money and state, is that going to happen? Is that going to be a thing? It's probably not going to go down as easily uh, as we think. Like, you know, you look at the separation of church and state, there's, there's a lot of revolutions attached to that. Um, you have the separation of, of money and state that, you know, a non-sovereign store value like Ethereum or Bitcoin or some other asset, a social token. You know, the only the only function of the state at that point becomes, you know, serving some sort of governance and court and and and, and maybe maybe security. But I think it's going to be difficult. Um, and the optimist in me says, well, we just keep pounding the table. We just got to create better content. Go go and meet these people. Understand their interests. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it can be frustrating. I don't know if you felt it, but it can be very frustrating at yeah. times to, to 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 have a to have key decision makers take no interest in crypto and just speak out of their ass without truly understanding how this technology can impact a lot of their constituents. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I hear you. Next question is if you could tokenize Hogwarts, where would you start <laughs> and why? Oh man. What blockchain would uh, Hogwarts use? Wow. Uh, Great, best question, by the way, because as you know, I love Harry Potter. Uh, um, <laughs> hmm, I, I would, I would, I would, to, I mean, I love Gryffindor naturally, so I would probably just, you know, 
tokenized Gryffindor. Um, I love the castle too. I mean, the, I love. I have that Lego Harry Hogwarts like castle. It's amazing. Um, so you're saying Gryffindor would have day. a social token? Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Each house yeah. would probably have a social token, but yeah. Gryffindor would probably crush because it's the best house, in my opinion. <laughs> um, so I'd probably tokenize that. Um, maybe even wands, but I, I think Gryffindor. I, I would start with Gryffindor, and just make it a social token. If you're if you meet certain parameters, then you are part of Gryffindor. Uh, and so like have a test, you know, there's like these tests online that you can take and like, it tells you if you're a Gryffindor or not, like the sorting hat test, which is by the way, better than Myers-Briggs and all this random stuff, like personality <laughs> traits, astrology or whatever. I just think like, if you're, you know, everything you need to know is if you're a Gryffindor or you're not Gryffindor. And if you're Gryffindor, you get access to this token. So I, I would do that. <laughs> um, I feel like your, I feel like your Tinder bio is just something like, <laughs> which team are you on? <laughs> <laughs> and that's how you know if you're a match or I not. Mean, totally. That's compatibility is if you're if you're a Hogwarts, uh, if if you're a Gryffindor, first you're a non-muggle. If you're if you are, which means you're in crypto, then then are you Gryffindor? And if you're Gryffindor, then all the better. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Um, if you were a ghost in the metaverse, what location do you think you would mm. haunt? Hmm. That's a great question. Uh, I don't know. There's all these different worlds that are like coming about. So I, I don't want to pick one because, but I guess um, I'm really excited about Alluvium. They have launched, but they're creating this beautiful world that reminds me a lot of like the games that I grew up playing. Uh, so I would lurk in these worlds and see that. The other is like Decentraland maybe would be interesting, like main hub. And it's an easy answer because you're going to see a lot of activity go through there. So I just think that the level of activity in Decentraland's like main square is probably going to be, a, there will be a point where it probably gets more eyeballs than Times Square in the next 20 years. And so if you're just lurking there, you're going to probably see a lot of really, really interesting stuff happen. Um, and who advertise there? Like we're probably going to see like real brands advertise in, Decent in, in these metaverse like main squares because like, For sure. you know, you get a lot of eyeballs. So I would just kind of lurk in that, uh, in that place. You you missed like the most obvious answer, the Aveverse. What do you mean? Everyone's a ghost in the Aveverse. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, that's true. Stani might kill me for not saying that, but yeah. no, that, that is very true. So I'd be I'd be I'd be a floating Ave ghost in these metaverses. Nice, nice, nice. So I'll correct, okay, so I'll that, correct my answer. <laughs> so that's the location you would haunt, but who would you haunt in the metaverse if you could haunt someone? as a ghost in the metaverse and you're like, like adam where like, like all these questions them? coming from <laughs> yeah. like 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 kill them wow. no just like uh, well, spook them just just no just spook oh them, oh oh, you know? oh I see. Haunt. Spook them. no man we're not we're not trying to kill anybody here this is not <laughs> yeah, I'm, a, I'm a friendly person yeah yeah, yeah I, I see i see sorry uh hmm i don't know if there is a voldemort version in the metaverse i would just probably like spook them um whoever that may be and maybe it's a crypto personality that uh is is, is the Voldemort of, of maybe like craig wright or whoever but i don't know who, who, who would be for you <laughs> um man good good uh good question i don't know i'm deflecting um, i'm just punting it on you yeah i actually haven't even thought about that i was kind of hoping you'd lay the foundation <laughs> give me a second uh who who would i haunt uh in the metaverse i'd probably haunt mark zuckerberg Probably, yeah. Well, assuming he's there, which he assuming will. he's there, 
assuming he's there, right? Yeah. Assuming that his vision for the metaverse kind of becomes a reality if and when, um, I'd spook yeah. him and probably a lot of other people in crypto would spook him too. <laughs> out of love, out oh, of yeah. love. Final uh, question. Love, yeah. Yeah. Final yeah. question. Okay. I'm a big fan of, of watching like the history and the growth of the internet uh, and realizing and, and seeing the development of its, of its different stages. And I like to break them up into three and I may be too generalizing it, but web one uh, was super early on. It was like the birth, the genesis of the internet. It was super read, read only. There wasn't much activity and utility that you can kind of develop other than really communicating. Then we had the introduction of web two, which ate web one and built on top of web one. Um, and you had more social networks, you had the Uber of, you had all these internet companies uh, building really interesting products and services online. Uh, and now we're entering into this world of Web3, which many argue is going to eat Web2. And the Web3 is all about ownership. Web3 is all about the distribution of money in the, at the speed of, of light, of information online, right? Yeah. And all these core components that allow people to own pieces of the internet, what do you think will eat Web3? Hmm. I don't know, really. Um, I think, uh, I mean, I want to say, like, the, the reasons why Web3 might not really truly scale, like, is the scalability. Um, you know, I think for me, like, I, I sometimes wonder, hey, like, do people care about decentralization? I don't know. Like, I, I do, um, but if it comes at the expense of X or Y, then, you know, I, I was sort of left wondering when I look at Binance Smart Chain, like level of adoption, it's like, okay, well, do users actually care about stuff? So it's just for me a healthy, like, reminder to say, and I know I'm deflecting because I, I, don't, I actually don't know, like, what, what comes next after Web3. I mean, I think Web3 is in so many ways. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, in so many ways, it's like, what is Web3 and what is our definition of Web3 today might change dramatically because, you know, you really have to just understand, I think for me constantly is questioning, what do people care about? Because users drive adoption. And if you don't have adoption, no one really cares. Uh, you know, technology, sometimes the best technology doesn't doesn't win. Uh, you look at VHS Betamax, like this, Betamax was a far superior technology because you had better marketing and you had better adoption by the porn industry of VHS standard. And that made it, uh, you know, the best standard. And MP3 is no different. It wasn't like the best standard, but it just had the best support behind it. And sometimes I do wonder, like, how this world will evolve, um, you know, I think, uh, and it ultimately starts with, you know, what people care most about. So <clears throat> my answer would be the definition of what we think of Web3 is probably going to be very different in the next year, two, five, ten. Uh, so for me to tell you how what comes next after Web3 assumes that I understand what Web3 is, which I don't think I understand it fully because it is moving very quickly and it means so many different things uh, for, for people. Uh, a lot of people just think Web3 is just gaming. A lot of other people say it's just DeFi. Um, and and I think that's what's most exciting about this world is, which is this this metaverse that we call it, um, is going to encompass so many different things. But what is clear to me is I think like, look, for better or for worse, the operating standard of a lot of things is going to radically change. It's sort of like, I think we are going through the email moment of crypto. Before email, no one really understood why the internet was useful. And then ultimately email made it so pervasive. Everyone is using email. Every single business, every single person uses email because it allows us to connect in a more fluid way. And at the end of the day, we are very social beings and love to connect. And so I think it's just finding those ways that are 
allowing us to connect and transfer value, not just monetary value, but just value, social tokens, DeFi, like just money um, in more fluid and interesting ways. And, and ultimately that will probably be expressed in so many different ways um, that is both daunting and I think will get really weird. Like minority report will probably be like pale in comparison, but it's moving really fast. And, uh, and that's, what's most exciting. Ultimately you want to be in a mm-hmm. position where like, I mean, how, what the metaverse and web three was a year ago is much different than what it is today. And so, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I like to think about this question and I ask this to almost everybody on the show. Um, if you look at what people kind of preach and communicate, communicate about web three, and how that compares to Web 2, where Web 2 is gated, Web 3 is borderless. Uh, Web 2 is centralized, Web 3 is decentralized, right? Web 2 is controlled and managed by a select group of people that get to see and quote-unquote manipulate or use data to their advantage. Everything is public in Web 3. And I try to think of like those types of characteristics and like what's the extreme side of that? Like if that if everything were to be on-chain, if everything were to be decentralized, if everything were to be borderless, right? What's the downside of that, right? And what will try to fix that, you know? Um, so mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Just something yeah. to think about. Yeah. I mean, I wrote, yeah. just the last thing I'll say is I wrote about this like a long time, just growing up in Mexico for me, like this idea of human migration is super like, I don't understand it. Like, why are we confined to man-made boundaries? And the downside of that is you see places like Africa, they were just chopped up like a sandbox by Europeans and like, candidly a lot of the problems that you see in africa today is because there's these man-made boundaries and ultimately what's most exciting is the the idea i think we are moving to a place where countries will become less important i think communities will start in the digital world and then permeate to the physical world like you look at esports like i don't i don't have any affiliation to my national team like i i i love like if there's a soccer team of crypto that'll be my team you know um and so all like younger generations of, you know what I mean? Like younger generations are really going to just think about nationalism or whatever that means. Like, um, att- attached to open source communities that are very fluid. All we yeah. need to solve is being, being, being able to easily migrate. And when you have, when you have the ability to port over money that is non-sovereign like Bitcoin, then you can go anywhere in the world. Then that's sort I think you will see a, a, a shift in how, we organize as humans uh, and the communities that we form like cities, a city like New York is more like London than what it is from Plano, Texas. But somehow yeah. we think about the United States. It goes to the last point, the early point that you were saying, which is there are shared values and principles that ultimately align us and, and coordinate us as humans. And I think um, we're going back to that where that becomes the primary like gravitational pull to wherever you may go. And it's not you go to a particular country. It's not that you go to a particular jurisdiction. Is you're going to where you really want uh, to be aligned with people that think like you, um, that share the same, maybe not think like you, but share the same values and principles. Right. And that is going to create that like reorganization. I think will create a lot of value. Um, and 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 that's what like is probably most exciting about Web three. Yeah. Love it, man. I think that's a perfect place to end yeah. off. Before I let you go, shill yourself. Where can we find you? Where can we find Punk9159? Uh, take it away. There we go. <laughs> uh, 
I'm in the metaverse naturally, but uh, <laughs> just leave it there. <laughs> Find me in the metaverse. <laughs> no, I'll be, I'll be, I'll probably go to, I'll love, uh, I'll probably go to a few conferences. Uh, so Eve Lisbon and, and then uh, a few others. So uh, you can find me there naturally, but easier just on Twitter um, at Santiago Roel. And uh, yeah. We'll nice talk anyway. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having me, Adam. It's always great to be here uh, and, and really appreciate the time. Of course. And I'll end it there. That's great, dude.